At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Fast Money starts right now. We've got breaking news. Uber pricing its IPO just moments ago. Let's get straight to Leslie Picker back in the newsroom for all the details. Leslie. Hey, Melissa. According to a source, Uber has priced its IPO at $45 per share. That gives it an implied fully diluted valuation of about 82 $0.4 billion. Now that $45 per share number makes it about a dollar above the low end of the range it had been marketing to investors. That ranged $44 uh, to $50 per share. Now we're not sure at this time uh, because all of this pricing talk is based on uh, people familiar with these discussions. We're not sure if they've changed the number of shares they plan to offer in the deal, but if it is still the same, $180 million, uh, the offering size would be about $8.1 billion making it the largest IPO of 2019 thus far. Obviously, this one very heavily anticipated. Uh, Hearing in terms of kind of the pricing discussions and why they chose to price it at $45 per share, which is pretty rare to see, especially with a large tech name and a unicorn that's been heavily anticipated uh, for many years at this point. I'm told that $45 per share was the price by which they could get uh, the best number of investors, of institutional investors, uh, into this book, which they hope means that those institutional investors will hold through till tomorrow. Of course, uh, Time will tell. They begin trading tomorrow morning. Back over to you. Leslie, when you mentioned it's not clear whether or not they adjusted the number of shares they were actually offering, Mm -hmm. is it thinking that perhaps they actually increased the offer even though they price at the low end? It's doubtful that they've increased it or upsized the deal as it's kind of known in the IPO world just because if they were going to do that, we would likely see more pricing toward the higher end of that range. Uh, But I just haven't been able to confirm for sure that the number of shares that they've been offering has stayed the same. So I just wanted to make it clear for viewers that we don't know for sure yet, Uh, but there should be a press release out uh, imminently, which will spell out the exact details for the number of shares that have been offered in this IPO. All right, Karen's got a question for you. Yeah, quick question. Let's say we have very bad trade news tonight. Mm -hmm. Is there any chance that they pull this offer, move it to, I don't know when, but that they don't close and we don't see trading tomorrow? I I would say there's always a chance for anything to happen, but usually once they've set a price and they've already decided to allocate these out to investors, there's a press release that comes out. Investors are expecting to get those allocations. It's very, very, very unlikely that they actually pull this. And remember, this is $8.1 billion for this company. They need this cash because they are burning through cash. So the sooner they have it, the the quicker they can get back to building their business um, and getting on with everything. Um, So I would say there is always a chance that You know, anything can happen, but I I would say it's very unlikely at this point. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker with the latest on Uber. Let's get to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange with some more reaction. Bob. Well, I think the important thing is the IPO market has been spectacular this year with the exception of Lyft. So we've had Beyond Meat, Zoom Video, Jumia, Pinterest, Levi Strauss, all trading well above their initial prices. Lyft is the one exception. And there are some particular issues with Uber. The size of the offering is just enormous. It loses money. Lyft has traded poorly. 
And I think just referenced a few moments ago is the market conditions. This is a very, very tricky deal. Remember, we were talking 4450 and a couple of days ago it was 4748. They're pricing at 45, and that's the prudent thing to do. You have two problems here. You have somewhat squishy demand, not entirely clear, but somewhat squishier than anticipated. And number two, you have extreme market volatility. When you have these two conditions, squishy con demand, extreme market volatility, the prudent thing is price at the very low end. Look what could have happened. $47, $48 they would have priced that. Suppose tonight we get a tweet from the president say, unfortunately, we're at an impasse on trade negotiations. The Chinese delegation is go home. We open down 500 points tomorrow morning. Uber could price significantly, could start trading significantly below $47, $48 and may close there. If you price it at 44 or 45 and you get, well, we've got a reasonable deal or we've got some agreement to continue to negotiate, it could trade up much higher. But if you don't, and the market's down 500 points, you could at least make a reasonable argument to everybody out there saying we should close very close within that initial range, say 44 or 45. And with the markets down 500, you close right there. That would be a victory for you. In other words, yeah. they're doing the prudent thing at this point. Melissa. Sure. Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani from the okay. New York Stock Exchange. You can't control market volatility, certainly, but in terms of this notion of squishy demand, the technical term that Bob just used, <laughs> I mean, part of that is, is it seems like from the time that Uber went public to now, there is an increased focus on the fact that these companies are losing lots of money in order to just operate their businesses. <laughs> for the time that Lyft went public. Right. Yeah, so no, you, absolutely. And what does it mean for the retail investor? And again, I think most people in the United States have heard of Lyft. They've, I've never been in one. I drove one one day, as you yes. recall. But they heard of it, so they felt they knew something about it, whether they did or not. So I think a lot of retail folks got into stock day of the IPO, day after, in the 80s, in the high 70s. Now they wake up, it's a $55 stock, and they're saying to themselves, rightly or wrongly, you know what, this game is in fact rigged. I'm not going to play in the stock market anymore. I think that's really detrimental to consumer confidence in terms of the market. So maybe Uber will be better or it'll, it'll trade better. But I think Lyft left a lot of people uh, licking their wounds, and I think it's going to take a long time to get them back. Yeah, I think the real problem with this is that the path, this so-called path to prob profitability, is might be non-existent here. I mean, it's really difficult to understand how Uber and Lyft are going to compete and actually make some money here because they don't right now. They lose an awful lot of money. So to me, the path to profitability looks like this looks like a, a long walk off a short pier for these folks. Well, and by the way, guy, great that you, st you kept the pink mustache on your bumper. Yeah, well, um, from <laughs> it's important. Yeah, that's nice. So, so you talk about the losses here. They, Uber going into this IPO has lost three point seven billion in the twelve month calendar into their IPO, which is the largest loss going into an IPO ever. Uh, for a company that's raised $20 billion in debt and equity, largest ever. Um, so, and think about the people that want to go out and buy this stock. Well, it's not BlackRock. It's not some of the biggest institutions in the world. They own it. So, I mean, there's some issues with this IPO that I think are very different than what we've ever seen. By the way, the largest IPO since Alibaba. So um, it's a case where I think people are very concerned about insiders. There was something in the prospectus that indicated that, by the way, um, a risk factor was added. Not that the company will never make money, which a guy brought up, which is, which is fair, one to be concerned about. <laughs> but but that, that, that people, that insiders could be engaging in hedges, short selling, or some types of transactions that will allow them to get liquidity before the lockup date. So we're talking about massive amount of stock. We're talking about an IPO that at one point was going to be $100 billion, is now pricing around $82 billion. You've got insiders that have been watching the bottom drop out. And that should worry investors, because I think that's the biggest issue with IPOs. 
Uh, good for them for, for just listening to the market and not trying. I mean, maybe this is jamming it down the throats <laughs> of that, even at this price. I don't know. But good for them as the roadshow went on and the markets were rocky and interest seemed to wane. Good for them to, to do it at a price to get done. Like these gentlemen, I don't get it. I don't get the model. We were talking in the green room. How, what do they really own? What is this? Is the, it's not drivers. It's, not, it's, right. it's the network, which they share with a lot of people overlapping uh, with, with Lyft. And so I, don't, I really don't get it. We've seen a lot of companies that don't make money to start. At $83 billion, a lot of things have to go really, really right around the world. You know, and I, I mean, maybe Uber Eats is the be all end all. I don't know. I, I'm so skeptical of it. And I feel like, you know, just looking at the S1, who's selling? So you have about 1.3 or 4 billion of 688 million is insiders, like executives of the company. Another six, 700 million is, you know, all the VC funds. I kind of think of SoftBank selling any, which they're selling a little. They still, granted, they still own a, a ton. But if SoftBank would even sell some at this price, Oh, my God, I don't want to own it. I, I just, not at this price. I mean, good for them for, for getting it done, but I, I feel very comfortable staying away. If they end up finding a magic beans to make money, great. That's good for them. I feel like there are a lot of bears on this desk when it comes to this particular <laughs> issue. Um, but to play devil's advocate, I mean, some people compare this to an Amazon, where an Amazon didn't oh. own necessarily. At that okay. point in time, when they went public, it was the magic of the connection of the platform that connected buyers and sellers. They didn't okay. actually you know, carry, in, they connected the third right. part, you know, other. Look, can I just address that for one sec? Just looking. You're what? like staring at me like, no way. That's a bad. <laughs> You're addressing it as you are. I'm just all, you know, I looked at Amazon. Here's one that went, didn't, went public, obviously wildly successful beyond anyone's imagination. And just looking when they did 11 billion of revenue, which is where Uber did uh, last year, Amazon actually made money that year. They had positive cash flow. They made money. They traded their enterprise value was 14 or 15 billion dollars and they made money here uber is losing tons of money at 83 billion dollars so the okay. comparison is so not good not in your favorable. view i mean uber's in the delivering people business amazon right. is delivering, delivering things goods. business mm-hmm. to people i don't know it I, I don't get the math yeah it just really comes down to and i don't i don't get it either and obviously lyft is telling you i think everything you need to know in terms of how um, enthusiastic the investment community is, but I think it speaks to a broader issue is is are the confidence of the retail investor being eroded seeing how poorly I know Bob spoke about how well Levi has done in Pinterest, but I think most really? people again, 99% of the people out there have heard of Lyft and heard of Uber, and if they see these things trade poorly after they've purchased stock at crazy levels, I think it's going to really keep them on the sidelines. I think in terms of market sentiment, that's a really bad thing. Let's bring in uh, Loop Ventures founder and Fast Money friend Gene Munster for more on Uber. Gene, what do you make of the pricing and where do you stand on this particular issue? Melissa, I was surprised at the pricing. I think that uh, if you look at a comparable kind of fast forward to 2020, which is a long ways out for these companies, but taking those estimates uh, at face value for a minute, the pricing at the, this $83 billion is going to be about 40% higher on a revenue multiple versus where Lyft is trading on their 2020 numbers, 4-0. Typically, when you see two companies that are similar businesses, in fact, 85% of their revenue is overlapping, typically you'll see a closer uh, spread. Now, I understand they do have longer-term different business models, 
uh, Lyft uh, being U.S., moving people around, Uber being global around moving people, food, and some logistics. So I understand that there's some optionality value that might account for some of that 40% dif difference, but this seems to me just simply too wide of a gap. I would recommend investors not play the IPO, wait for this to kind of settle down to more like a $60 billion valuation, and then think about do you have the appetite to uh, weather what's going to be a difficult 2019 for both Lyft and Uber as they invest in the future. Right. So you don't you think the pricing is too high at this point, Gene, but in terms of just the fundamental business, let's say down the line, it, it trades lower and there, there might be an opportunity. Do you like this fundamental business and do you see a path to profitability that so many people are, are so hung up on? I do longer term like the fundamental business. I think three, five years from now, these companies, Lyft and Uber, both will be around. And the specific reason which gets me optimistic about this is I'm a believer in the undeniable truth around autonomy and the impact on that can have on their business model. And I understand that there's a huge investment phase in uh, between now and then, but Melissa, the simple answer is I am able to see so, through and how autonomy uh, longer term can have a positive impact. How, how do you think autonomy, let's, let's extrapolate then to that point in time where autonomy saves their business and that that's their path to profitability. Right now, they don't own cars. Right now, they don't pay salaries to any workers. They're pretty asset light. At the time uh, where autonomy is prevalent, they are able to use that model. Do they own the fleets then? Do they then become asset heavy? Are they dependent on other people who own those fleets of autonomous cars and sort of lend them to Uber? I mean, how, how do they actually make money from that situation versus what they have now? When we think about all the variables, they're staggering. Uh, these unknowns, uh, exactly, you outlined some of them. Other, if you partner, you take an example of uh, Lyft potentially partnering with Waymo, what's the revenue split going to be between those two? There's just so many assumptions that need to be built to get you comfortable in the long term. It's, a, it's quite an exercise. But to answer your question is we think that the best path forward for both Lyft and Uber is to partner with hardware players and essentially use their brand around transportation as, uh, as kind of a high level and take a high profitable cut out of that. If you believe that that is in fact the future, then you'd probably overweight and want to own Lyft just because their approach tends to be more partnership when it comes to autonomy. Recall all of the efforts that Uber has had uh, around autonomy. Some of those have put the brakes on what happened in Phoenix and separately around some IP that potentially was taken from Google. All of that, I think, speaks to a very different approach to autonomy. But that is where you need to get to, is a point where they're right. not, they're asset light, and they just take a cut. Uh, Gene, hold on. We've got some more breaking news on Uber. Leslie Pickers in the newsroom with the official press release just out. Leslie. Hey, Melissa, that's right. The company issuing a press release confirming that $45 per share price for its initial public offering. They also said that they plan to sell $180 million, so confirming that the offering size will be $8.1 billion uh, as it gets allocated to investors. Now, uh, this $45 per share also implies a fully diluted valuation of $82.4 billion, significantly higher uh, than where their last private fundraise was at $76 billion. Uh, but as we mentioned earlier, the $45 per share is about a dollar above the low end of the range they had been marketing to investors. Melissa.
All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Bicker in the newsroom. Let's go back to Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Gene, you heard the official details, 100 million, 180 million shares in this offering at $45 a piece. This is a massive offering. Um, tomorrow morning, what will you be looking for? Uh, the stock to trade down, I think, throughout the day. I mean, I understand there's going to be some support, but again, there's either either uh, Uber needs to trade down or Lyft needs to trade up, but I think that that gap needs to somehow close. I'll be watching that gap. Interesting. Gene, thank you, as always. Great analysis. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Uh, Tim Seymour. Well, I, I think the market factors are, are, are important here. I think the other dynamic here is now we have to think about how people are going to be approaching WeWork and some of the other IPOs that are coming down the pike. Um, you know, Gene basically said, I'd like to see this stock get down to a $60 billion valuation and settle in. Settling in at $60 billion is, is moving down 27% from here. So um, we have a lot of respect for Gene's view. And, and I think, you know, he is talking about this disparity right now between Lyft and Uber just on valuation. So, um, I do think that the market conditions are, are part of this, but I, I, I think we've been teeing this one up for, for, for weeks now for this type of a, of a, of a mood. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I understand what Gene's talking about. Autonomy is going to be a big thing. To me, Uber and Lyft are not the way to play it. I mean, why don't, go, why don't you go with something like NVIDIA if you want to play that? It's not clear to me that Uber has the advantage in autonomy at this point in time. All right, coming up, as we mentioned, Uber pricing its IPO at $45 a share, the low end of the range ahead of the big debut tomorrow. We'll keep you updated on the latest headlines as we get more. Plus, trade tensions are heating up and stocks are getting crushed. The S&P 500 now down 3%. Chinese stocks are down a whopping 7%. Who has the most to lose? We've got those details. And later, a major call to break up Facebook, this time coming from one of the co-founders. What does it mean for the stock? The traders will weigh in. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks getting crushed again today amid a trade war of words between China and the U.S. The turmoil sent the Dow on a roller coaster ride, down as many as 450 points, although closing off the lows as the deal deadline rapidly approaches. And U.S. and trade negotiate, China trade negotiators are meeting right now. Kayla Tausch is outside the U.S. Trade Office in Washington with the developing details. Kayla. Hey, Melissa, rarely do you see this level of paparazzi outside the sleepy U.S. Trade Representative building just across the street from the White House complex. But that's what happens when the stakes are this high with the next few hours being potentially make or break for this trade negotiation. You have uh, the Chinese delegation led by Vice Premier Liu He inside right at this moment, received earlier this hour by the U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer, who is leading these negotiations alongside the Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. After that, they're expected to go to a dinner nearby, a working dinner. And then at some point this evening, President Trump said earlier today that he would be taking a phone call with President Xi Jinping of China, who my sources say is behind the markups that came to this deal late last week that so angered the U.S. delegation and led President Trump to hike tariffs at midnight tonight to 25 percent 
from 10 percent. President Trump also today said he wasn't just going to be raising those tariffs. He would potentially be targeting the rest of Chinese imports, about $325 billion worth. So we will see whether these talks for the next few hours bear any fruit, what is left on the table tomorrow for the two sides to discuss. But President Trump leaving the door open for some optimism. Listen. It's very much like China. The vice premier is coming here today. We were getting very close to a deal. Then they started to renegotiate the deal. We can't have that. I think it'll be a very strong day, frankly. But we'll see. We'll see. It was their idea to come back. A strong day, but we'll see. Of course, the next day could prove very instructive, Melissa, for the next steps in this trade fight. Yeah, or the next tweet. Uh, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche, we've seen both U.S. and Chinese markets get hit this week. Check out the FXI, the ETF that tracks large cap China stocks, down 7%. The S&P 500 down about 3%. So if a deal doesn't get reached, who's got more to lose? Is this the right metric to look at? No. I, I See, I don't think it – I mean, it's a metric to look at. And sure. I think President Trump – looks at and says, okay, we're only down 3%. The Chinese market is down 7%. We're winning in leaps. We're winning by two and a half times. I can do that math in my head. Maybe he's right. I don't know. I don't think so. I think the Chinese are looking at a much longer picture. We look in terms of weeks. They look in terms of decades. And I think, quite frankly, we have more to lose. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think the Chinese have any interest in making a deal at any time soon. I think we're getting strung out. You can have tweets saying we're close. We're not close. Market goes up and down. But this is now 15 months after the fact, give or take, when it started in March of 2018. And, and I, me personally, I don't think we're any closer now than we were 15 months ago. Without getting overly dramatic on this, mm-hmm. which I never do, but um, <laughs> I, I do think if, if we really want the global economy to be strong, um, the, or the implications for the U.S. economy are such that um, if you think about where we were a year ago when the global economy was clicking on all cylinders, it was actually probably more 15 months ago. Um, China was a big part of that. There was a recovery. If we see China China completely, you know what, the bed. I think we have a dynamic here where this isn't good news for anybody. This is a global economy. And say what you want about trade tariffs. And, and well, I think most people know what they want. Uh, I, I'm all for um, beating a stick where you have to win a negotiation, especially when, uh, look, I think there's national security risks here. I, I think there are certainly intellectual property risks. But it's not uh, a, a, you know, a winner takes all for the United States if China goes straight downhill. And EM is down 8% in four days and has underperformed the U.S. market by 400 basis points. Um, so, yes, it, markets are asking questions later. I, mean, I don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I really do believe that Trump wants a deal. He's based his whole presidency on how is this economy doing, how is the stock market doing. Sure. And if he were to say, right, and he's pay- facing re-election, Xi has, what, nine and then plus forever, <laughs> I think, on his, uh, yep. his contract. So <laughs> I, I think that they ultimately have to come to a deal. I don't know that it's tomorrow. Necess- I, I know it isn't tomorrow, actually, but I don't know if we, cool, we see cooler heads prevail tomorrow. But I think it doesn't matter who's got the better hand. Trump needs to have a deal. The thing is that as much as we are down this week on the S&P 500, it's one of the worst weeks of the year. That's how much we are off the record lows, basically. I mean, off the highs. 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 So that's so. So he's got. He's got got a lot lot of room to negotiate. Absolutely. And I think he's going to use it. So there's a long, a long way to go. I agree with Karen. Going into the election, I think it's very difficult to get extremely bullish on the U.S. stock market because it's the stock market president. That's his report card. There's no shot he's going to let this thing go down. He's going to pull every stop out. 
uh, that he can to win the election. That being said, in the very short term, I think he looks at this and says, listen, I got a lot of room in the stock market. It can go down another three or five percent. And then I'll put out a tweet and then I'll negotiate and a thing will rip higher. So it's a game. It's incredibly difficult to trade this. So for me, I think if you're not a professional trader, you stay out of this. Well, then is that really, really bad news for a sector like the semiconductors where you have Intel after a disappointing quarter comes out yesterday just before the close, disappoints once again. The stock takes a five percent today. Having this was a Intel. This is not a small company. This was a fifty eight dollar stock two weeks ago. Close to $46.5 today. So, you know, if if, if the semis are any indication of what's going to happen, I mean, Intel is telling a much different story than maybe some of the... not euphoria, but some of the optimism that the market showed late in the day today. Our next guest says there are three stocks that can weather the trade war storm. Fundstrat's Rob Slimer is here to tell us what they are. Rob, what are you looking at? Great. Thanks, Melissa. Look, so we're at a pretty critical point. You just mentioned that we were, the market's got a lot of a, cushion, a fairly big cushion underneath it. So we're coming right into those levels on the S&P, around 2800, 2860, right off the 50-day today. So it's fairly interesting. We've got this binary event tomorrow. And the fact is nobody knows what's going to happen here. But what's critical is to have some perspective on this bigger picture on the market. We talk about this all the time. That was a major low back in 2016 off the 200-week moving average. We had the exact same thing coming into December. So we've had this huge run-up to the, uh, the old highs, and a lot of the weekly data is peaking. We see that here. We've talked about that many times, and now it's starting to erode. It's the percentage of stocks with rising weekly momentum. It's actually starting to work its way down into oversold territory. So as we move through and into the summer months, we think it's bottoming. So we think we're into this choppy period here, very similar to what we saw back in 2016 in these areas here. So the market's run up into resistance. It's going to come back. It's going to chop around a little bit. We think this pullback right now is actually an opportunity to be adding to some names. So... Let's take a look at a few of them. One of them is relatively defensive, CME on the exchange side. And what's so interesting here is as it pulls back to the 200-day moving average, it's starting to recover. More importantly, this relative performance is starting to hook up. So if you're worried about the market, this, to me, is still a very good name. It corrected all the way through the first quarter. It looks timely. Now let's move on to stuff that's a little bit more cyclical and a little bit higher beta, um, coming back into some pretty key levels. This is Morgan Stanley. What I think is interesting, it's had this big correction through 2018. That relative performance is starting to improve. We think the financials outperform in the second half. This is one of the early leading names in that area, and that relative strength started to hook. We think it's pretty timely at current levels. And then when we go to the last name here, uh, we just talked about the semis. I'm a big fan of the semis. I think they bottomed very early in the market cycle. Back here in the fourth quarter in October, that relative performance started to lead. They've had a big move. We want to be buying this near-term pullback in AMAT. I continue to think this is a perfect proxy for the cyclical recovery that we're seeing across the stock market and global assets uh, uh, globally. Um, And we want to be buying this pullback. So those are the three names that we like. All right, Rob, why don't you come on over to the desk? Evan will bring the chair over. Evan does a great job with that chair, doesn't he? The chair yeah. and the flipping yeah. flip yeah. burger. Flipping burgers the other day. It's talented. That's how it starts. Shall we raise Okay, it? Rob. Um, a lot of people today were making a, a lot out of the 50-day moving average for the S&P 500, 2860. Do we have to defend that level? I don't think we do. It certainly okay. was nice to see it be defended today. We've got this binary event. I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen tomorrow or, or next week, but Holding the 50-day was a positive point, but that big band of support going back to the fourth quarter, around 2,800, I think, is much more important. The 200-day is down at that level as well. We've been looking for a 3 to 5% pullback. We're in that range. I don't think we go materially lower. 
So you liked applied materials, and I'm wondering if the semiconductor index overall looks as good it, in your view. It does. It's, it's, in fact, it's more extended than AMAT is. In fact, if you think about uh, what KLAC looks like, mm-hmm. so it's just had this big drop-off last week, I think that's really healthy. It's not great for investors to see those kind of drops. We've had so many growth names and so many cyclicals run so hard in the first quarter. They're starting to pull back. It's not the end of the world. Yes, Intel's action today was terrible, but if you look at Google, which also had a similar drop last week, it's holding right around the 200 days. So I don't think it's going to be smooth sailing here for the next, call it six weeks or so, but I think we're in a chop. We do want to buy these pullbacks. You have to stay focused on the longer-term view. So, Rob, I'm curious then on CME, to me, looks like a momentum trade, right? Looks like it wants to break out. Is that something I should wait for a pullback on? No, I think you should buy it right here. Okay. Uh, We've been using it. Uh, We actually get on it. Hold on one second. We actually featured it in March. We were early and wrong, (laughs) but we're back to even on the name. But I think it's uh, almost a a, a counter-cyclical name. Gives you a little bit of defensive performance. The exchanges tend to act fairly well in an ugly tape. I think it's a great name to own it here. Rob, you can make an argument that there's four or five different asset classes where the charts look like they're at the precipice. Which is the most important to you? Uh, in terms of a single market? Whether it's credit, whether it's the dollar, whether it's, you know, is there anything that's part of your mosaic? Oh, boy, I think it is a mosaic. I'm not sure there's any one single one. What I think is so fascinating is the dollar hasn't given up any, hasn't rallied on this, on this volatility that yeah. we've seen. And you saw the 210 curve start to steepen that's today. That's bullish for you. I think it's a good sign. I think that we're not seeing credit explode. We're not seeing the dollar spike. We're not seeing gold spike tremendously. Overall, I think this is a messy period. Stocks are overbought. They need to unwind. They're going through a consolidation. I think this is an opportunity. Rob, thank you. Rob Slimer of Fundstrat. Uh, you've been quick. You've been uh, on CME for a long time. Big fan, Terry Duffy, who watches this show. He's been Big on a fan. number he of times. He actually does. He does. Yeah, he d- I know. I just said that. <laughs> Unlike said all like the other one. people who you say watch the show and <laughs> don't. Now, but anyway, please. go ahead. Valuation is fair. They do a great job. You know, they're, basically their volumes continue to increase. And you look at Nasdaq as well. It's had a stealth rally. So I agree in terms of the exchanges. I would push back on Morgan Stanley. Book value is forty-two and a half dollars. That's where it should trade. You know, CME is kind of like a stealth uh, trade war play as well. Because look at what the agricultural commodities did today. They just got absolutely destroyed. They have been the, the forefront of this. You're going to see volatility, and it's going to play out in CME stock. You're pointing out uh, the dollar on the conference call. Yeah, today. we were talking about it. Yeah. Why do we saw bonds really, you know, tick a yeah. lot higher? I mean, yields lower, bonds higher, and yet the dollar down. I mean, I don't know what to make of it. Quickly, I just say watch that HYG because that and the JNK have been. I think very important for risk, and they have broken through key levels. All right. Still ahead, Facebook is soaring this year, but one of its co-founders says the company is too powerful. Can the social media giant survive a painful breakup? We've got the details. And check out shares of Win After Hours. That stock under pressure after reporting earnings. We'll bring you the latest detail as that uh, conference call is underway. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. Welcome back to Fast Money. Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes making a big call on the government to break up the social media giant's monopoly. In a New York Times op-ed, he says it needs to happen before Facebook combines its Instagram and WhatsApp platforms. Hughes will appear on NBC's nightly news this evening. Do you think Facebook is dangerous? 
I do. The reason that I'm speaking out is because I think Facebook has become too big, too powerful. He is extremely powerful because he has no boss, because there's, been no, there's no regulatory agency. Facebook responding today saying accountability for tech companies comes through new rules for the Internet not breaking up a successful American company. So is it actually time to break up Facebook, Tim? Well, you know, the irony here is I actually think this adds value. Um, I, I think there's multiple properties here which are enormously valued and are undervalued right now. And in fact, the, the, the core business is the one that's getting most of the valuation. We're starting to see levers pulled at Instagram. So it, to me, this is a case where uh, I think you have four businesses under this umbrella. Um, would this help the regulatory dynamic? Let's put it this way. As you've heard me say, I think Facebook trades at a discount to its intrinsic value because of regulatory risks and because of just, uh, I think, a perception problem. Yeah, in fact, in that article, he said, we've seen other antitrust cases at Standard Oil, Microsoft, IBM, and uh, AT&T, and all of them actually traded higher, ultimately. I just, I don't know that this is, if it's a legislative issue, I just don't know that they can get it done. Um, I, I'm skeptical. I, maybe there's something like GDPR, I don't know. Uh -huh. I, uh, but ultimately, I don't think that was that detrimental. Where do you stop, though? I mean, it, it seems to me In like... the legislation? Yes. I mean, I, I think this is a very slippery slope. And, and the reach that Facebook has into the Internet is the same one that four or five companies, which we all know well, have. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a dominant position, and it's rules of the Internet. The, the problem, I think, is that I, I would imagine that most people don't want Congress, all due respect to Congress, to be the ones making up legislation about things that are very complicated right. to understand and things that are constantly changing. So then, then you get to a point where you say, they're needs to be an, uh, the equivalent of an FDA for data not. privacy yeah. or tech regulation. No, no, I don't think so at all. I mean, we've gone through this multiple different times with multiple different industries. This is no different. If they're breaking the law, and if we're upset about that, then don't use the product. If you can do that. And there's other com there's competition out there. You look at something like WeChat, the super app. That's what Facebook is trying to go after. There are competitors to this. So I don't think Isn't they need to be broken Isn't this different, up. though, than bundling a browser and a search engine? I mean, like th this is one person who has the controlling shares of Facebook in all these platforms who ultimately has control over an algorithm which populates a news feed from which millions of Americans get their primary news? I mean, isn't this slightly different from the How do you break past? up Facebook, though? I mean, I don't Instagram know. notwithstanding, I don't, I mean, that that's, I don't that's know. my yeah. question. I don't understand. You're going to have 50 different... Does each state have their own Facebook? Does, does each demographic... No, WhatsApp. 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 Okay, so you strip out WhatsApp, but you still have yeah. the core Facebook. I mean... Again, I don't know how you break. I understand what he's getting at. I just don't understand how you break it up. One other thing that was interesting he was getting at is Facebook's ability to crush, copy, or buy anybody that is a potential yes. threat to their like business. And so were there to be re legislation that would prevent them from doing acquisitions or copying? Uh, okay, then maybe that would affect Facebook's growth. Also, that's uh, very hard to legislate. This sounds like Amazon to me, too, though. Um, no, I, yes, I believe I, Amazon has been in a position to crush or copy or put somebody out of business. And, and it's, it's worked for the consumer, but it hasn't worked for those businesses. Coming up, a wild week for the markets with the major indices down more than 2%. But if history is any indication, it could be your best chance to buy. We'll explain. Plus, it is the big story of the after-hour session. Uber pricing its IPO at $45 a share, the low end of the range. We're all over that story as it gets ready. The company gets ready to make its public debut tomorrow. Much more Fast Money on this very busy night. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Volatility soaring to its highest level since January this week as trade war tensions heat up. But if history is any indication, spikes like this are actually buying opportunities. Let's get to our resident volatility expert, Brian Sutlin at the CBOE with the Options Action. Hi, Brian. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, as people run to the excess, so to speak, and, and fear rises like we saw on Tuesday, where the VIX rose over 45% in just a week's worth of time, that typically has been a bull opportunity in the market. The average return four weeks out after that is about 2.5% return on the S&P. And when you look 12 weeks down the road after that VIX spike, you're looking at over 4% return. So, you know, not every reward comes with risk. We have definitely seen the market drop 9%. After that spike happens, the market could roll over. But when I look at the technicals going on in the marketplace and, and the fundamentals, I think 28.15 or so on the S&P is a level I'd be willing to buy here. If we break there, maybe a little bit further, we fall to 27.15. But I think there's opportunity. I mean, I'm in guys' camp to some degree that China does not need to cut a deal. They can kind of wait it out. Even if they do that, you have the Fed put. Traders expecting a rate cut later this year. So... Certainly, that would fuel some fire back to the upside. If we get a Fed rate cut, I think that buoys the market. That at least is behind everything here. So I'm not too fearful. I took a lot of my hedges off. I'm almost flat on my VIX positions now and really playing the market back to the upside, as you normally would indicate, getting a VIX mm. spike like we saw over the last few day trading days. All right, Brian, thanks for that. Brian Stutlin out at the CBOE. Um, Karen, yeah. would you take all of your hedges Not off? Not all, but yeah, I've been yeah. selling some, you know, it's scary to do, but I just, it's interesting to me, the VIX was down today in a pretty well and, and ultimately down market. I, I think, I mean, this is why you own them for these spikes. So I'll sell some more tomorrow and then probably some Monday. I, I think it's interesting that Brian, I commend Brian for talking about a, a, basically a call here that does not rely on a trade deal getting done. His point mm -hmm. is that actually this is a dynamic. We've seen this. Yes, there are some headlines that created these spikes in volatility, but that there's a Fed behind this. There's, there's at least some Chinese conviction to get something done. I, you know, that's, that's different than other people who are making their call uh -huh. subject to a, a trade deal that's satisfactory. We were I, talking I'm about impressed. this. Was this just last night? Savita. We were talking about if the Fed came in and cut, Did a great job. how would the markets react? And Brian here saying that it would be a put underneath the market. So be, there would be a floor, it would be supportive of the markets. And yesterday I you guys am... looked at me like I had two heads. <laughs> no, on. no, 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 okay. I didn't do very that. pretty heads. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. But Savita made the point that a, a cut might actually be Bad. negative for the market. Right, exactly. And I agreed with her. I said, I agree. I looked right at her and said, I agree with you. Growth I think scare. a cut no. would be negative. Growth scare worse than inflation. Yeah, you don't want yes, the Fed but, cutting twice. It's, it's a disaster. But if, no. the Fed, if the Fed frames it that they're worried about inflation and and uh, Unemployment's going to be fine, and this is just for inflation, then it is going to be positive for the stock market. Right. Agree. For more options action, check out the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, win under pressure after a earnings report. That stock taking a hit this week amid China trade troubles. Are any of the traders buying this dip? More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. It is the big story of the after-hour session. Uber pricing its IPO at $45 a share, the low end of the range. Deidre Bosa is here at the NASDAQ on set with the latest. Deidre. First time. Welcome. Thank you, Thank you for the kind welcome. Um, so Uber pricing at $45 a share, and that is, of course, near the low end of its expected range, and it gives the company an initial market cap of about $75 billion, $82 billion if all the options and RSUs are exercised. More than it was worth during its last funding round in private markets, but guys, significantly less than 
than that $100 billion it was once targeting. Now, a number of things led us here to this muted demand for one of the most anticipated IPOs of the year. And guys, I should mention that it is rare to see a company this size priced below its range. You have Alibaba, Lyft, Facebook, some of these big companies that all priced above the range. So a few factors here. Volatility may have made investors a little nervous. And then we add Lyft's weak performance since its debut. And the fact that for its first earnings report, it took away two key metrics and said that 2019 would be its peak money losing year. And that, of course, just raised the stakes for Uber. But even with Uber pricing at the low end of its range, there will be some very big winners here. SoftBank, of course, which owns the biggest stake stands to hold $10 billion on paper. Just 16 months ago, it bought its stake for less than $8 billion. There's Benchmark, which was one of the earliest investors. It will hold a $6.8 billion stake. And co-founder Travis Kalanick's stake will be worth about $5.3 billion. And guys, this company has been private for so long and there have been so many investors that there's even people in there that you might not expect. Jeff Bezos is a winner in this. Eric Mm. Schmidt is a winner in this. Of course, you have big guys like Alphabet, um, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, but there are a lot of people who will hold a lot of money on paper when Uber goes public, even at this valuation. We were just talking to Gene Munster of Loop Ventures and he was saying that tomorrow he's going to be watching Lyft and how it trades because the valuation gap should narrow with this offering. So Lyft might go higher but Uber will likely trade down. What are you hearing about that in terms of the the relative value of the two? Well, I think part of the reason that Uber priced lower is that it was being priced at a higher premium than Lyft. And you look at the numbers side by side, Lyft is actually growing a lot faster faster than Uber, right? You have 100% growth year over year. Uber is just slowing. It was like half that last year. Um, So it'll be interesting when it goes public. I think Lyft has had a really hard time, but some analysts say that they like the focus, right? And that's what's going to be really on display. If Lyft can get to profitability faster and say that 2019 is its peak year of losses because it only has to worry about North America and ride sharing, not all these moonshots and fighting these intense battles competitively in other markets. That'll be on display tomorrow. Do you think that there will be a floor at 45 tomorrow that the underwriting groups will be there come hell or high water? Or if there is pressure at 45, what do you think happens? That's a really good question. Um, Leslie Picker, who has very well sourced on Wall Street, has been digging into this today. And um, one of the questions, you know, that comes up is how are they going to support it? How is Morgan Stanley? But maybe some of the other investors do. Do they take a little bit off the table tonight and leave some money on the table so that they can support the stock at, say, $45. Um, we'll see tomorrow. We've, we've heard some things about this, but we're not quite sure yet. Right. Deidre, thank you. Thank you. Deidre Bosa. Still ahead, check out shares of wind sinking after a earnings report adding to big losses this week. We'll hear from the CEO when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Wynn Resorts, the stock falling after hours. Let's get to Contessa Brewer back at headquarters with the latest. Contessa. Hey there, Melissa. Yeah, Wynn Resorts CEO Matt Maddox says the company met its own expectations this quarter, but analysts like David Katz at Jefferies think the showing in Macau was somewhat lackluster. Even where the house got lucky, like its competitors, Wynn is seeing a trend away from the VIP gamblers, those high rollers coming in on junkets, and instead seeing a boost in mass players. Well, competitors like MGM and Sands are really taking away some of those 
premium mass, the top players in the business. In Las Vegas, Baccarat numbers down significantly, not just for Wynn, but for the market. The executive team at Wynn Resorts blames it on global headwinds. And in fact, Deutsche Bank's Carlos Santorelli asked about trade concerns and tariffs. And Maddox said, look, global uncertainty is always a concern, but there's no specific data points that make him worry about this with casinos. Wynn Resorts raised its dividend to a dollar per share. They uh, said that if it's an opportunistic time, they would consider share purchases. And also Maddox brought up the possibility of litigating the Gaming Commission's decision in Massachusetts. It left the license intact but said he needs to undergo executive coaching. He says if the litigation were to happen, it shouldn't stop Encore Boston Harbor from opening next month as scheduled. And Melissa, uh, a lot of traders and analysts are looking at that to return some free cash flow to the company. All right. Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer back at headquarters. Uh, Tim, where do you go with this? Well, you know, it is disturbing that the trends and the segments are actually underperforming. I, I think the, the fact is that this stock is trading down based upon bottom-up numbers as opposed to just talking about Macau or Dynamics. And, yes, it's difficult to assess. I actually think, you know, you watch the stock, it's actually traded through that 130 level of lows today, somewhere around these levels technically. Um, I think the stock holds in. I think there's a lot of bad news here. It was my final trade last night, in yeah. full disclosure, and I, I said I'm teeing myself. Now, I but, but I did think that numbers will be good. Now, Las Vegas was actually disappointing. Uh, Contessa didn't bring that up, but Las Vegas was a disappointment. But Macau, listen, when Macau disappointing, when Palace was better than expected. I think there's enough for the bulls in here. I understand why it's selling off because it's run from 99 to a buck 45. But I think to Tim's point here at 130, I think it settles in. I think you buy the stock again. All right. Coming up, final trades. For the final trade, let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. We talked about oversold conditions. We talked about semis. There's a lot of bad news, and there's certainly a, a lot of momentum to the downside. I would actually be buying the SMH here, semis. Brian Kelly. You know what? I'm going to somewhat agree with what Tim has to say. If you want to play autonomous, don't go with Uber or Lyft. Go with NVIDIA. That's the way to play the big secular trade. Hmm. Karen Feinerman. Yes, if you're not sure what to do about trade, I like Anthem a lot. I think it's unduly sold off, and I think it's a very... Place, a good place to hide without worrying about China trade or any trade, for that matter. Karen's daughter, Kate's here. She's adorable. Yes. <laughs> Going to college next year. Huge. I've noticed since she was like a little person. Yeah. Number one. Number two, I met some guy today. He said his five-year-old son, Caden, don't roll your eyes at me. It's five years <laughs> old. Did I do that? Show. Hello, Caden. Uh, How hi, you Kaden. doing? Isn't that adorable? Yes. Five, you go figure. Adorable. Fast money at five. McKesson, MCK. We mentioned that the other day. You see their earnings release, Melissa Lee? Yeah. Nice that job. does it for us. Thanks for watching. <laughs> see you back here tomorrow at 5. More Fast Mad Money starts right now. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.